Hello, and welcome to the second episode of Media's post-pandemic programming series. My name is Carol Severin, co-founder and senior analyst at Media Research. I'll be moderating our session today, and the focus of this podcast episode is on advertising in the post-pandemic world. And with me in our virtual studio are Hannah Callert, our cultural insights expert, and Tim Mulligan, our research director and lead video analyst. Welcome both. Hello. Hi. So uh, to kick things off, I'd just like to start at a sort of nice macro level. Hannah, how have the sort of global digital advertising dynamics changed since the pandemic started? Um, well, I'll throw a bunch of numbers at you to start with. Uh, according to the IAB, digital ad spend looks to finish 2026% up on 2019, and that's plus 26% on paid search, plus 25% on social, and plus 19% on CTV. Whereas traditional ad spend has definitely suffered estimated like minus 8% across all traditional channels. So we're seeing um, basically a uptick in digital ad spend and more of a focus on it from the advertiser's perspective and definitely a movement away from traditional ad spend. So like out of home, for example, has really suffered under lockdown and uh, linear TV, as we're seeing the transfer to streaming video, um, more advertisers are moving their spend over to streaming video. That's really interesting and actually a nice segue to maybe, Tim, could you give us a little more flavor around what advertising has been looking like in terms of video? Sure, yeah. So obviously we focus around the digital landscape, but I think it's important to put the context of what's happening in the linear TV world as well. This provides some context for where we are now. So since COVID-19 impacted upon the entertainment landscape, we've seen two clear trends for video. One is significantly increased engagement for both linear TV and for digital uh, video services. But there's been two contrasting stories in how that's played out for advertising revenues. So we take, for example, Comcast, which is the um, the parent company for NBC Universal. In Q2, they had a 29% decline in their advertising revenue down to 1.3 billion. If you look at AT&T's Turner division, part of their Warner Media, part of their business, they lost 37% in advertising revenues in Q2, primarily as a direct consequence of the sports landscape being put into hiatus and having to pay back part of the, uh, the received revenues from that. Now, to contrast that with YouTube, so Alphabet's YouTube, there was a 6% increase over Q2. So not dramatic, but if you factor in on the one hand, Traditional TV is losing up to a third of its revenue from advertising at the moment. In digital, it's not great, but it's going in the right direction. Okay, that's really interesting and really a nice dichotomy of dynamics. Uh, Tim, particularly, I just wanted to follow up. Is this a temporary change in, in terms of these dynamics or is this what we would call the new normal? It's a combination of both is the, the reality of the situation. We are in unprecedented times. But what underpins how the consumption and the revenue generation behind entertainment in the digital landscape is now changing are long-term secular trends. So we see this most dramatically in the shift towards subscription and video-on-demand engagement and the decline in linear TV viewing. 
So in Q2, for example, the Media Research Quarterly Consumer Survey uh, identified only 40% of consumers engaged in watching live linear TV on a weekly basis. So you contrast that with the 50 plus percentage point penetration for Netflix and all the markets which we track. And you can see that there is an underlying shift towards digital. And what COVID-19 has done is it's accelerated that trend. So the challenge for business now is having to accelerate processes and transformations, which they believed they had years of planning to be able to manage that change. The change is happening now, not in the near-term future. Interesting. And are, would you say are ad-supported services likely to do better or worse in the post-pandemic world? And, and why? And maybe Hannah, kick us off on this one if you, if you like. Well, better in a sense. So we're, we're a digital first world now. So that's where the eyes are. So, you know, obviously advertising on digital is going to do better than traditional advertising increasingly as we, we move further into this. Um, and the subscription market is is crowded. We're in an attention economy, a saturated attention economy, and we're moving into a, a time of reduced spending due to recession. And so while and on top of that, the content is super divided. So across all of these different streaming services, so consumers can't afford to have like so many stacked subscriptions, which means that a free but ad supported service is is a really easy add on in um, in this landscape. However. On the other hand, we're still seeing trends of low ad effectiveness, um, with 41% of consumers saying saying that they stop paying attention when TV ads come on, and 49% saying that they usually skip ads online. So, you know, there's there's so much more data available to digital advertisers, but the ability to use it to target effectively is still something that they're all working on it that that really needs to be honed and perfected as we move into an era where very much ad-supported services are a very compelling proposition, but whether or not the ads themselves work is something that is on the advertisers very much to ensure. Okay. Tim, anything to add there at all? Sure. The ugly truth around advertising is it's tolerated rather than welcomed. So what we'll see as we move into a recessionary landscape, we'll see a greater tolerance for ad-supported access to content because of restrained discretionary incomes. But the flip side of this, as, as Hannah's um, identified, is we are in an incredibly competitive landscape for uh, direct consumer media consumption. And there's a whole generation of expectation brought around having an ad-free experience. You think of what are the key drivers why people choose uh, subscription video on demand services such as Netflix is not only is it cheaper, dramatically cheaper by, in some cases, 90 plus percent, they're also uh, contract-free engagements. So you pay on a month-by-month basis, but also they are ad-free. And if you think about the traditional pay TV world, where not only were consumers expected to pay for substantial annual, some cases biannual contracts, but they were also expected to tolerate um, frequent ad loads to be able to additionally monetize the content they were watching. And speak to any showrunner, any storyteller will tell you 
having to plan around ad breaks is incredibly disruptive to the overall narrative of storytelling. And that's why the likes of Netflix have been so successful in attracting showrunners into their original content strategy because the showrunners know that they're not constrained by the limits of primetime viewing and the need to fit advertising breaks around their content. So it's very much a case of there'll be greater tolerance for advertising in a recessionary landscape, but there's also an increasing awareness amongst consumers that ads are tolerated and ads are not the only way to engage with content in the streaming landscape. That's that's some great insight. Thanks both. And I'd, I'd like to sort of turn turn the page a little bit right now and look into, you know, who the sort of winners and losers of these shifts might be. So to start this off, you know, traditionally Google and Facebook owned sort of most of the digital advertising space, but we do see the rise of advertising from other ecosystems, including Amazon and Apple. How are these two different to the former two, if at all? Sure. So maybe I, I can uh, provide some uh, insight into that. So the tech major's approach to advertising is highly delineated by what their platform and ecosystem strategy is. So if we take the example of Facebook and Alphabet, obviously the owner of Google, YouTube, uh, and Android, they are primarily ad-serving businesses. So their core revenue streams come from displaying advertising. So they monetize engagement on their services through being paid to display relevant advertising to digital consumers. But the other tech majors have a more nuanced approach towards advertising. So we take the example of Amazon. Amazon has arguably the fastest growing ad business of the tech majors over the the last five years. It's grown dramatically from a sub-billion dollar revenue business four years ago to uh, three to four times that size now. I think it's approaching $5 billion worth of annual revenue now. And what they do is advertising for them is a way, it's a natural extension of the retail platform, which is at the core of Amazon. Amazon is always about getting people into their funnel so that they can then use their marketplace and be sold goods. And Amazon takes a cut of selling those goods. So for them, advertising is a combination of, yes, being paid to serve ads, but also to improve the retail experience. And then if we look at the likes of Apple, Apple is almost an ad-free experience. It's not because of the App Store. There's opportunities to pay for uh, premium listings um, on the the App Store, which is a uh, a sub-billion dollar a year business, sizable for most businesses, but obviously of a uh, very limited revenue opportunity for Apple in its current incarnation. So Apple is the one least... Uh, least aggressively pursuing an advertising strategy because there isn't a strong place for it and it conflicts with its core brand identity about protecting the data of its uh, of its billion plus user base. All the other tech majors need to use advertising as a way to either generate direct revenues or to grow engagement across their ecosystems. 
That's really interesting, and particularly as we often hear the sort of fan grouping, etc., or sort of speak about tech majors, but it is really important to sort of always keep in mind that uh, the business models of many of these companies are fun- fundamentally different, as you've just pointed out. So with this in mind, Tim, would you say, I mean, how, how much of a threat, you know, are Amazon's and Apple's sort of the new, more nuanced advertising initiatives, as you said, how much of a fre- threat are the are these to the likes of Facebook and Google in the mid to long term? Hugely. It's fundamentally an ecosystem play. Because if you think of, we'll take the example of Amazon, where Amazon sits. So Amazon has this uh, sub-billion uh, monthly active user base. They've grown dramatically in, I mean, just even this year through lockdown, their, their overall um Gross revenues are up in some cases by 50%. But what they do is they have such a diverse footprint across many of the key areas of the digital media landscape across streaming music, streaming video, transactional video on demand. But they also have the device integration for the likes of Echo. And they have compelling content that isn't available in other places, such as their primetime sports engagement, which they're slowly feeding into the, uh, into the Amazon ecosystem. Adding all those uh, components together allows Amazon to offer something which Facebook and Google via Alphabet, well, Alphabet via Google, aren't currently able to do at scale, which is to match the user journey through a device-led engagement and a content-led engagement with being able to serve relevant advertising. So there's a real systemic risk to non-core device-led platform offerings such as Facebook and Alphabet because we know that both Facebook and Google have been, uh, they've done they made various forays into the device world, but it hasn't really taken off and it hasn't gained traction. Look at Facebook's portal. It's still very much a, um, uh, a work in progress. The, the Chrome stick, for example, um, doesn't, uh, doesn't have the same level of traction as, uh, as Amazon Fastic. Sorry, Chromecast. Um, so there's challenges, challenges for Google and Facebook to grow out of their non-device-led position in advertising. So that's really interesting dynamics, particularly between the four tech majors we've been discussing. But how about the sort of tech majors and the and and the rest? Um, you know, you you you've pointed out Tim before. You know, with a billion-dollar opportunity, may be a huge opportunity for for um, for for a smaller company. May not be as significant in you know Apple's results, for example. So I guess my question is, you know, how how do these dynamics around advertising uh, in the post-pandemic world affect tech giants versus the other ad-supported businesses? Are there are are these two groups being affected differently? Yes, undoubtedly. Because the clear winners of the COVID, uh, the COVID impacted world in which we live in now are tech companies at scale, tech companies that already have global operations and are able to leverage, uh, user bases in either the sub billion or the billion plus, 
uh, range. They're the ones who can spread their footprint and use their economies of scale to be able to effectively double down on their ability to uh, generate meaningful ad engagement experiences. And again, this goes back to one of the challenges that Facebook has, for example, up against uh, Amazon. Without having innovative technology to be able to iterate into what the future of advertising will look like for, especially for content engagements, companies such as Facebook are increasingly at risk of being disrupted by not being able to innovate and adapt to where the market's going. And this is, this is a, a perennial problem for all businesses, especially ones that have rapidly risen, such as the tech majors. There's always a risk of, of not being able to seize the next opportunity, not being able to execute it. And again, Facebook it had a, uh, a foray into virtual reality uh, three years back, and the Oculus Rift experience never actually took off. But that's the kind of thing that's the level of innovation that they need to be sustaining if they want to be able to be in control of their own destiny for advertising. Because I mentioned earlier, the, the ugly secret of advertising is it's tolerated. It's not welcomed. And it's not welcomed by storytellers. It's not welcomed by consumers of the content. But what is undeniably true is you can blunt the the negative connotations of advertising dramatically if you make sure the advertising is relevant, appropriate, and a fair value exchange. And I know um, Hannah's done some uh, uh, research around what these value exchange uh, concepts could look like, but I'm sure she'll be able to tell you more about that. But at, at its core, it's really about treating your digital consumers as savvy, understanding consenting participants in a fair exchange of their time, their attention, some cases their data in exchange for access to content that otherwise they would have to pay for. Okay, I'd like to uh, change tack a little bit right now and look at the consumer side of things. Hannah, how has the pandemic changed how consumers perceive or respond to digital advertising? Uh, well, the, the short answer is actually, in fact, yes, there has been a change in consumer response to digital ads. I mean, over overall, we're seeing some consumer resistance, but it's honestly more like fatigue um, when it comes to ads. So obviously, we're in a saturated attention economy, our third decade of the digital era, arguably, and there's just advertising everywhere. You know, you look, you can see an ad for one thing, and then you see an ad for a competitor, when ads come on on a TV show, 41% normally stop paying attention, but um, this is in Q2 of 2020, so during the pandemic, and it's actually down from 58% a year ago. On the other hand, in Q2 2020, 49% of consumers skip ads they see online, which is actually up from 44% in Q2 of 2019. So you're seeing actually increased tolerance to traditional forms of advertising and decreased tolerance to digital advertising. You know, so in, nine, in 2019, 19% didn't want ads and services they had paid for, but that's gone up to 30% in video services. In 2020, 23% now use ad blockers, which is up from 17% in 2019. 
So basically, as we've transitioned more online over this period, people have become more aware of and resistant to the ads that they see there. Um, so fatigue is lessened from the older formats, but they're just not using the older formats as much. So the, the ratios has changed. Okay, that's really interesting and actually go, goes to the point that both of you have made about sort of uh, consumers becoming a little bit more tolerant towards advertising during the recession as they try to, you know, sort of uh, make, you know, financial adjustments, behavioral adjustments, etc. But at the same time, as they are moving online and further into digital, uh, the digital space, they are actually becoming uh ever more tech savvy. And with that come things like, you know, sort of your awareness about, you know, managing cookies or using ad blockers. So it's it's very interesting to see these trends transpire in our consumer data. But I'm interested, Hannah, just to follow up on this. I mean, are are any demographics affected more than others? And and how 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 do they, you know, sort of differ, let's say, via age groups and stuff like that? Do we do we see any interesting differences there? Um, yeah, some more different, some more interesting than others, because obviously you would expect the youngest consumers to be more tech savvy and a bit more on with the ad bloggers and like the older consumers, 55 plus to kind of be like, oh, what is internet? Um, but this is actually not the case. So the consumers who are most likely to actually stop paying attention to ads during a TV show are in the age 55 plus bracket at 53%, uh, followed by the age 16 to 19 at 47%. So that's, that's a traditional one. Um, which makes a bit of sense because the 55 plus bracket is probably more likely to also be watching TV, live TV. Um, but they're actually really close in using ad blockers. So 20, 24% of age 55 plus and 22% of uh, 16 and 19s, um, which is up from Q2 2019. So uh, in Q2 2019, 15% of age 55 plus and 19% of 16 and 19s were using ad blockers. So as we go more online, our awareness of ads grows and so does the aversion to them. And that actually goes all the way from, you know, Gen Z high schoolers to their grandparents. That's a really interesting point. I mean, uh, did we did we get to the point where where all the young audiences have already shown their parents how to use and install Adblock? I mean, I guess so, right? (laughs) They've been spending so much time together and the kids are like, no, no, come on. Like, what are you doing? Here's an ad blocker. Uh, Really like cross-generational. I mean, I'm sure you've also made your point when you, I'm sure it'll come up during your episode with Alistair on games and esports, but um, just cross-generational sharing of digital content is going way up. Absolutely. During, During a recession, you know, sort of low income consumers are likely to, you know, start ditching premium in favor of ad supported as you or you know sort of not necessarily ditch completely but essentially reduce premium in favor of ad supported services but you know despite the sort of reach improving that way does this mean that the average value of each reached user will actually be lower uh particularly as you know, it will be most likely the consumers who are most affected financially who will be switching back to ad-supported first with the ones who perhaps have uh, sort of more flexible financial means perhaps staying uh, on premium services. Does that do anything to the, to the, to the value of, of, the, of the reached user base of the ad-supported services? And if so, can, can you know, how can advertisers best reach these high-income segments in the post-pandemic world that still may stay behind the ad-free paywall? 
Yeah, so um, we see in particularly in emerging markets like Brazil, uh, Spotify, for example, they have huge reach for the free tier, but the ARPU is really, really low. Um, a lot of services don't have this free versus the paid tier. So what this means is that in, in a recession when, for example, people who are more likely to be affected by a recession earlier that ad-supported services like Video On Demand, Peacock, for example, will have an advantage while the premium-priced ones wouldn't. Um, but I think what we will see is that bundles will be a big winner. So Amazon Prime, for example, or the new new Apple One are a huge um, value for money with games, video, music, and services. Like one of them has, you know, Prime Delivery and the other has like iCloud Storage, which are both like super important in this day and age. Um, but in terms of actually reaching those those consumers who will have a higher uh, purchasing parity, um, the actually the highest, the most receptive to ads is in the uppermost income, second uppermost income bracket from eighty to one hundred thousand. So they they're just more more likely to pay attention to audio ads than ads they see online. Um, they're more likely to not skip ads that are relevant to them. Um, and they're also the ones who are least averse to seeing ads and services they've paid for, followed by the under 20000 per year income bracket, which makes sense because they're more used to uh, sacrificing for a, a lower cost. So basically, that means that the ones with the highest, highest purchasing power are a little bit more receptive to ads already. Um, and the ones with the lowest purchasing power are very, very tolerant of them. So how do you how do you reach them? It, it's basically about knowing knowing the content you're putting out and being able to target very effectively. It all it all really goes back to that. Yeah, it makes sense. I think also to add as well goes back to the um, earlier observation I made about the relative sophistication of digital audiences, the the value exchange. Now, one one way to get behind that paywall to to square that circle of the most engaged audiences being the ones who don't actually um, don't engage with ad supported services because they're behind paywalls for streaming services is partner with relevant brands and relevant services to be able to super serve them content and brand messages that enhance their experience. So imagine Nike partnered with Amazon around specific aspects of their original content strategy for their um, the recent sports documentaries they've been putting out about uh, all or nothing for uh, UK and US uh, sports franchises. Having that level of brand co-positive relationships allows a way to get around those digital walls because it's unlikely that even those um, low-income, more tolerant digital users will want to be subjected to the same kind of generic um, pre-roll, mid-roll, post-roll, one-size-fits-all template advertising because that's literally just been taken from the linear uh, playbook and how to dis- how to deliver ads in uh, prime time linear TV. It's not a digital native way of displaying ads. You start doing things like what Truex was done. So Truex was a um, company acquired by Twenty First Century Fox, and it's just been um, uh, it's just been uh, divested uh, in the last few months by uh, by Disney as part of its uh, ingestion of the 
uh, the 21st century Fox um, assets. Now, 2X has a way that is in some ways ahead of its time for engagement where they make uh, at the start of the uh, delivery of premium content in the app experience, the users ask the choice right at the pre-roll. They'll ask the choice. Do you want to spend 30 seconds completing a short survey about this brand or do you want to be subjected to four ads over the next hour, which will take up 15 minutes of your time? And so there's a very clear exchange there because not only does the consumer have the opportunity to only lose 30 seconds of their time as opposed to 15 minutes of their time watching their content and have the whole uh, the whole narrative disrupted, but also the the advertiser who's paying for that ad placement is getting more value because they know that they are directly engaging with the end user because the reach aspect of advertising is is that highly intangible uh, issue that I remember Joe Wanamaker famously said that 50% of advertising is wasted. I just don't know which part is wasted. That's how linear TV has been able to justify these high price points for advertising. Digital advertising provides some level of engagement and metrics to avoid that. But if you can actually show the advertiser that the consumer you're targeting has not only been aware of your ad, but has actually responded and given you some directional information about how they feel about your advert, you have a win-win. You've got a win-win for the consumer who has dramatically reduced disruption to their viewing experience, and you have a win-win for the advertiser, which means they're going to get more value out of it, and there's a premium which the distributor can charge for that ad experience. So thinking in those smart positive win-win scenarios that are cognizant and respectful both of the technology available to uh, digital services, but also the the savviness and the range of optionality available to digital consumers. It's going to be part of bringing advertising and video, at least, very much into the 21st century. And you've, I think you've touched upon a really important point there, Tim, as well, uh, in terms of sort of engagement and creating sort of uh, tolerable but ideally positive consumer experiences. And that kind of brings me to to the concept of fandom. We've written a lot at Media in recent sort of months and years, perhaps, uh, about monetizing fandom and you know the ability to monetize fandom really being one of the key growth opportunities in the attention economy going forward. So my question is, you know, are ad-supported businesses essentially missing out on monetizing fandom in any way because these models are predominantly based on consumption rather than, you know, sort of uh, selling sort of premium fan items, etc.? Hannah? Well, yes and no. Fandom is the differentiator in in an era where there's so much content. How do you pick what to watch and what to choose and what to talk about with your friends, right? So that's it's it's self-advertising, it's in in memes, it's on Twitter, it's something that you can't pay for with advertising dollars. So it does in in a sense it relies it it pays for itself. Um so and when it comes to whether an ad-supported service can actually capitalize on that no service has fandom itself, but for example, Netflix has been able to generate fandom hits. So, um, you know, like Stranger Things or like Orange is the New Black, 
So ad-supported models can also do this without an issue. Um, I mean, Netflix isn't, well, I suppose Netflix is selling Orange is the New Black t-shirts, but I, like, you know, if, if Peacock came out with the same kind of thing, they could probably do the same kind of t-shirt selling. Um, it's just a question of whether the ads get in the way of the fandom and whether consumers then seek that out elsewhere and whether the service is able to position its content to the audiences who will be receptive to it and have the affinity to become fans. So you know, like if Amazon has usually older consumers and they've tried using, um, or Amazon Prime Video usually has like older demographics, but they've tried with shows such as The Boys to really appeal to younger audiences, uh, which is an outreach. But, you know, you can't do that unless you're in a position as a service to really reach those audiences. Absolutely. I think also we need to talk about the, the relative size of the opportunities for monetizing fandom versus being able to sell ad inventory as it currently exists in the media landscape. So the fandom per se, with with some noticeable exceptions, is not at the same scale that the global uh, advertising businesses. I mean, just in the world of TV alone, globally, there's over $400 billion worth of revenues derived from serving advertising. Now, the most successful franchises out there that are monetized currently in the video landscape are the likes of the uh, the Disney stable of the Marvel franchises, uh, the Star Wars franchises. Now, those are significant, and every installment of the, the narrative there is a billion-dollar-plus content delivery, or it certainly was until the, the movie theaters were um, suspended, and then the ancillary uh, pay TV licensing deals that are done um, and the merch spinoffs there are all significant. But we are still not yet at that time where the trade-off from advertising is less than the trade-off from fandom monetization right at this point in 2020. That's a very very interesting point, and thank thank you both for uh, for 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 really interesting insights throughout. I I want to wrap this up with a uh, with a last question, perhaps just like a one one fire minute each. Um, what will be the most important thing for companies to focus on in the post pandemic era when it comes to advertising? Sure. So invest in the right partners invest in the right distribution platforms and crucially invest in the right technology. Focusing on a win-win value exchange is going to give you the best return on your advertising investment. Do not look at digital advertising as purely a digital uh, replication of linear engagement because the digital world is fundamentally different. It's more savvy. It's incredibly competitive. And there are an infinite range of alternatives for a digital consumer to spend their time. So you have to respect who they are, respect where they are, and play to the inherent advantages of digital around far more robust ROI tracking um, and far more engaged experiences, both for the consumer and for the advertising partner who wants to find meaningful value. Go for quality over quantity every time. Yeah, definitely. Quality over quantity, um, messaging, careful targeting, and really alignment of social values. A brand is is more than just a product now. It's it's a part of consumers' daily lives. Um, you can't, 
like obviously don't push your audiences too hard. The dead advertisements we've seen in like the London Underground, but oh, don't you miss the commute with your nose in someone's sweaty armpit? It's like, well, no, nobody does. It's not really the point. Um, but you know, we're, we're, we were already in the peak attention economy. Like consumers are already getting ad fatigued and making sure that you're engaging in a conversation with your audiences rather than showing them and serving them content that they may not need or want uh, is just super important. And so what advertisers need to learn from moving forward, and just as Tim said, it's we're in the digital era. We have so many more tools now to to perfect our targeting and to perfect content and to make good content that's not just a, a flashy ad. It's more than just about you know views and marketing and uh, how many clicks something got. It's about it's about fandom and generating the sentiment towards your brand and um, just being part of a larger conversation. Well, fantastic. I'd like to thank both Hannah and Tim for being with us today. Uh, really, really interesting insights. And I'm uh, hoping our listeners equally enjoyed the session. If you'd like to get in touch uh, and you know explore any of these topics further or say hi, make sure to check out mediaresearch.com uh, or write us an email at info at mediaresearch.com. I've been Carol Severin. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks, Tim and Hannah. Thank you, Carol. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Be sure to keep up with all the latest episodes by subscribing to Media Research on your favourite podcast platform.